This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, normally, I like to start with a joke or a quib. I got nothing for this. I, you know, <laughs> can you write me something? Because I don't want to. So why don't we just let the audience calm down because it's been an intense experience. What drew you to the book? What, you read this book, and what made you say, I, I, this is a movie I want to make? Well, it was a long time ago, and I, um, I really, they weren't making movies like this. They weren't making adult genre movies. And what happened in the intervening years, because as I said, I'd read the book in the 90s, is television began doing that job for the movies. Is when I was cutting this movie, I was watching True Detective. And I was thinking that if I had seen True Detective while I was prepping the movie, I probably would not have made the movie. And I thought, you know, this movie, and it's in the abbreviated form of the books, and there are 18 books, I thought, you know, this should be a TV series. And um, all the stuff that drew me to this movie is now happening in television, sort of adult genre stuff, non-action movie. Thrillers have become more action movies than anything else or, or comic book movies. And I miss this kind of old-fashioned, slow-paced, you know, the Alan Pakula thrillers of the 70s, The Parallax View and Clute and um, All the President's Men and films like that. I really, really wanted to, wanted to see. But now they're all, like I said, they're all being done, done on television and done well. All right, so you, you make the commitment to you know write the script. What was the biggest challenge in adapting this book? Um, it's dark. It's dark, and and the the trick was, it's about him. You know, it's I think it's an emotional story about him, and and finding a way to. There was a lot more of this movie. We cut out quite a bit, but they're they're just finding a way to keep to keep some emotion in the story, to keep something, um, you know, he was, he was interesting to me. And I think just sort of keeping him alive in a way, that was the, that was the trick. And also these guys, having them, they weren't, they were barely there in the book. They just, you never really met them until the very end of the movie when they showed up at the, at the cemetery and there's the, some stuff on the phone at the very end. But um, I wanted to just do a little bit more of them. And I was fascinated with the idea of Y2K and how quaint that seems now. Everybody was afraid that was the end of the world. And a year and a half or so later, it, you know, that's when the world really changed. And I always thought of those two guys as sort of an interesting harbinger, these two things that are out there running amok. And we didn't even know. And we had no idea what was, what was happening. And so all of that was interesting to me. And, and New York is a character. I think I'm just fascinated by New York movies and had always wanted to, wanted to do one. Yeah, speaking of locations about New York, I mean, I'm from New York. And I've seen so many movies about New York. You found locations that I've never seen before, but I knew it was New York. Right. Did you consciously scout stuff like you didn't want to show the traditional places? But... Yeah, because Law & Order, all the infinite variations of Law & Order have shot the <laughs> out of New York. <laughs> There's nowhere to go anymore. And everywhere I walk in New York, I, I think, oh, I saw that in Chris Rock's movie. I saw that in that movie or that TV show. So we spent a long, long time. We started scouting very early. And the mandate was to find angles on the city that you hadn't really seen before. And even if we were in locations that had been shot a lot, like the view of the Statue of Liberty, you see it a lot in movies, but we... We're trying to find places that you might not have you might not have seen on on film before, and neighborhoods you might not have been in, or at least you know the part of the neighborhood we were in you might not have seen. It was hard. It's hard everywhere we would go, and even times where I thought, "Wow, this is great," you know, you would be standing there, and a neighbor would say, "Yeah, a week ago they shot," you know. 
<laughs> younger here or something. Uh, so let's talk a little about the opening. You and I have talked in the past about how important the openings are. In the first two minutes, you get a full sense of Matt Scudder, and he has maybe two lines of dialogue. Right. He's an alcoholic. He's reckless. He stands there and gets you know shot and doesn't even flinch. Uh, how did you craft that? How did you like work with Liam on that? Because it was really important, but he'd set the tone completely for his character. Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about Dirty Harry, which was a great film in the 70s that I loved. And um, kind of fascist, but, but I loved the way they set him up so quickly in the beginning of that movie. And there's a whole sequence where he doesn't say a word on the rooftop of that movie, and then that little bit of action at the beginning. And I knew I wanted to have a title sequence that felt like 19... 19- 72, you know, the way the title comes up over him. You don't really do that anymore while he's still walking. And I kind of felt like that would be really interesting. And, and I knew I wanted something, because the movie was going to be slow, and the movie was going to be, what well, we'll say, deliberately paced. How's that? I knew I needed something at the beginning to kind of promise something else. And so that was sort of my thinking. And I also wanted to bring his past to bear, because I, I felt like we had to tell that story over the course of the film. And this story about his past that's in this book that I mean that's in the film that he tells is actually in a different book and um, I sort of robbed it from another one of the novels but I thought the only way to do it was to break it up a little bit over the course over the course of the movie and I know it's like in the original script which you would to give the scene there was a little more dialogue yeah you didn't need it so I, is that something on set you decided yeah we shot it we shot all that dialogue but you find when you're in the cutting room that you want stuff and I still there was stuff I was going to cut out of this cut tonight I might go home and do it um, <laughs> you just you just see where okay we're done and you had enough and it was far more powerful without him saying a word and he does he did this thing on the day Liam did where he's walking down the stairs and he does a little jig <laughs> and I thought that was much better than him continuing to beat up the guy he just shot and I thought let's not even see the guy he just shot let's just see sort of him standing there in full frame I thought how could you Anything you cut to after that will feel will feel not so not so interesting. Is that sometimes where an actor like Liam Neeson or you work with says, "You know what? I can do this way. I don't need a line." Does he come to you and say, uh, "Yeah, let me try this"? Yeah, or they just do it. Sometimes they're just in the moment and they just do something that occurs to them and it's great and they don't even realize they did it. And you'll say, "Oh, oh, do that, do that again. That thing you just did. What, what thing? <laughs> no, the, the little dance you did going down the stairs. Or and sometimes they will come up to you. They'll they'll say, I have this idea I want to try.' And sometimes they're great ideas, and sometimes they're less so. <laughs> <laughs> and in the book, he has a sort of a girlfriend. I know at the beginning. Yeah, but listen, we're already cutting up women. We're mutilating women. We're kidnapping women. And his girlfriend in the book is a prostitute." So I thought, okay, I'm already going to be in huge trouble, as is. And I, the character in the book, he has a very close old friend in the novel who's a man and named Joe Durkin, who's a policeman who helps him solve this case. And I wrote the part for a woman because I thought I need somebody in this movie who's not getting mutilated, attacked, or anything else. And Ruth Wilson played the part, and she was amazing. She's a great actress. I don't know if you know who she is. She's in The Affair right now. Um, and we shot it, and it was about 20, 25 minutes worth of stuff, and it was my favorite stuff by far in the movie, and it hurt the movie. And I showed the movie to my first cut. I was really struggling with the first cut, and I showed the movie to two of my toughest friends. I showed it to to Tony Gilroy and uh, Steven Soderbergh, and first thing Tony Gilroy said to me was, you need to cut the woman out. 
said, you need to, it's too soft. And he reminded me that when I saw his first cut of Michael Clayton, George Clooney had a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And there were all these scenes with George Clooney and his girlfriend and George Clooney at home drinking wine with his girlfriend and talking. And, you, and I said to him, you don't care about George Clooney's girlfriend. He's a much more interesting character in isolation. And he said this the same thing here. This guy is alone. You don't want him to have anybody in his life at all. He also, his son was in the story. Matt Scudder has a son. And I actually, um, interestingly enough, Ansel Elgort was originally cast to play his son. And then Liam, after I'd cast Ansel, Liam called me up and said, how would you feel about my own son playing my son? He wants to be an actor. And what do you, what do you say when your movie star <laughs> asks if his son can play a role? And I said, sure. And so we shot the scenes with Liam's son as well. And imagine the phone call when I have to call him later and say, I've cut your son out of the movie. And he actually was fine with it. He didn't, he didn't care because, he again... Anybody in his life, it felt wrong. It just felt like a whole other. It felt like a whole other movie. And and there and son, and his son was very good. His son did a great job. He was just, it wasn't right for for. And really, TJ is kind of a son. He's something. Yeah, but he gets all like a, there's a there's a father son thing yeah. brewing there. So it almost like it would have been double. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It just felt like we like we didn't need it. Yeah. Now reading the book, I noticed that the the drug addicted brother uh, wasn't to me felt wasn't as pre- prevalent in the book as is in your movie. No. And uh, is that kind of just like you want the show uh, Matt, where Matt Scudder could have been, could he go back to? A mirror to his dark part of his soul? Um, it was more about plot. There was no plot in the book. In the book, he hired these two computer hackers to hack phone booth phone records. Mm. And that's how he caught the guys. And it wasn't very cinematic. And they were fun characters. They were called the Kong Brothers, and they, were, they had a lot of great lines. But it wasn't very, visually, it wasn't very interesting. And so I had to create a whole other plot, you know, beef up the whole plot about the, the, the DEA and his brother getting, his brother being responsible for, for him, for all of this happening, I thought was much more interesting. I just found the relationship interesting because yeah. Matt could relate to him. Yes. Uh, he's been in the same place. I like the fact that he wasn't really judgmental. No. Like a typical noir, like, oh, you know, I'm better than you and no. kind of, no, he felt like because yeah. he knew that he could be that again. At any moment. Uh, let's talk a little about the scene, uh, like the detective scene. It's one of my favorite scenes, you know, the hiring of the detective. You have that great line when he says, uh, where, do you, what, did the corruption get you? Yeah. I'm like, no, I, can't. I had to support my family. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how did you balance that? Because, he, of course, he rejects, you know, the offer of money. So is that something important to you to make sure he doesn't do it for the money or you kind of... Well, he's being asked to find a couple people so this guy can kill them. And it's not what he wants to do. It's not really what he wants to do. But when he hears that tape and he hears about what they did, then there's a part of him that, you know, I think this is a guy who's always atoning. And I don't think, even at the end, it never feels good. Even when he tries to do the right thing, it doesn't feel good because he has to be this guy he was. And it's never very comfortable for him. And I think even after he shoots the guy at the very end and he walks out of the basement, he's not happy about it. It doesn't look like, he doesn't feel good about it. He's not puffed up, and I think that was a big, a big thing for me, is that he, you know, you, he's doing these things, but he doesn't necessarily feel, feel better. I like the fact that he runs to the 12 steps, actually, right. after, because he you knows he's tempted by the money. Yes. He's tempted by the life, but really almost empathy yes. brings him back. Without question. And yeah. justice, and actually noble stuff, but it's, uh, 
I also like the complicated side to me, because he's a really complicated character, it happens with TJ. I love the library scene. It's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Uh, did you write that as a relationship, or did Liam Neeson just couldn't work the interwebs as an actor, and you decided... No, you got to give him a reason. No, he was always... I always saw him as kind of backwards and not into technology. And also, what I don't like in movies and television is all... Everything is solved in an instant on a computer. Mm-hmm. Everybody in, you know, in 24, they download the blueprint of the bathroom he's about to go into, <laughs> and he knows where everybody's hiding, and you can find anything on a camera, it's, you know, the, the traffic cameras, and everything can be found on a computer. And I thought that's, I missed the old gumshoe stuff. And because this was 1999, 98, 99, there was, it was before all of that exploded, where, where it was all happening, but it wasn't like it was today. And part of it was just, believe it or not, an aesthetic choice. I just thought it was more interesting not being into all of that stuff. And I think it's interesting because normally, again, the film noir would never take on that kid. No. That character would ignore it. But he opens, 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 opens up his heart immediately. The great diner scene. I don't even uh, know if his heart's open, though. It's kind of hard to tell how he feels about him. He definitely is concerned about him. He definitely is, in, is, is amused by him. But I think it's only at the very end where he's sitting there where he even understands what that kid kind of means to him. Yeah, it also gives that great, great parenting advice about the gun. Right. Feel the gun and then kill yourself. Right. So uh, don't do that to your kids. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little about TJ because I was amazed by that kid. Was there anything that he brought to the character that really surprised you? Um, no, he surprised me as an actor. I mean, I found him on the X Factor. You know, he was a rapper. He came in second place a few years ago. Um, his name is Astro. That's his rapping name. And uh, we looked at a couple hundred kids, and he was far and away the best. And he just is that way. What was amazing about him is he did no preparation. He always remembered his lines, though. He would show up on the set, and I don't think he would study his script until he got to the set. And he never slept, and we were shooting nights, and I would tell him, you've got to sleep during the day, Astro. You need to sleep during the day because we're going to be shooting all night long. And he would be sound asleep in his trailer. Whenever I would have to call him to the set, he'd be sound asleep. And then he'd show up, and he'd look all surly, and like he's a, you know, a teenager. You're waking him up, and you know, teenagers are all... You tuck me in. And so he's, he's, was just in that mode. And he, but then, the, as soon as we said action, he woke up and became this in, incredible, incredible actor. He's just a natural. He's just, he's a real natural. And he, he, what he brought to it was just not trying. He didn't, you know, we kept trying hard not, don't make him cute, don't make him too excited about everything, just be smart. I just want him to play smart, and Astro is, happens to be very, very smart. And he also lived on the street for a good portion of his life, so he understood this kid. Oh, man, that's, uh, he was great. Uh, one of my other favorite scenes was the Jonas scene with the pigeons. Oh, where he walks off the roof. He walks off the roof. I mean, he, again, we had the great line, I could stab you in the throat with that knife. Yeah. But he actually takes, Lee Neeson takes a different approach. Right. Actually reaching him and kind of like trying to understand him. Is that just another sign that he's trying a different... And I'm trying to sort of thwart expectation because if this were taken, he would have taken that knife from him. And they would have had a big fight in that little tiny shed and, it, you know, and he would have thrown him off the roof and it would have been very different. And I like the idea that it doesn't happen, that we're withholding that here and there. It's almost like music where you know there's this chorus you want, but it comes later. And, and so I thought it was a much more interesting scene if he actually has a real conversation with this guy and, and um, 
Dari Olafar Olafsson, that actor, is an amazing actor. I mean, he was in True Detective, actually, and he was in Walter Mitty. He was hilarious as the helicopter pilot in that movie. He's an Icelandic actor, and he's amazing. I actually wrote a little more stuff for him to do once he started working. I kind of felt Liam was kind of like the priest in that scene. <laughs> you know, let me, you know, I, you can redeem yourself here. Yeah. Almost, if you just tell me what I need to know. Well, he's clearly unburdening himself by telling him that awful, awful story. Yeah, that was... Uh... So, and also we kind of quickly understand why he jumped off the roof yes. when we meet Ray and Albert. Well, that's <laughs> the thing. You need to, you need to be, you know, you need to believe that they're, that they're as awful as he says they are. And, if, and um, the sad thing was when they marketed this movie, I saw the trailer. Every trailer, there he is walking off the roof. <laughs> and I said to them, you can't do that. You can't show him walking off the roof. And they said, well, you know, we tested the trailer in a mall. And everybody's favorite image was him walking off the roof. And I said, I'm sure it was. <laughs> but I said, you can't do that. You're, you're giving away this huge moment. And they, they said two things. One, they said, well, you know, in movies we give away the best jokes and people still laugh. I go, but that's a joke. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something that's supposed to surprise you. And, um, and then they said, too, they'll forget. <laughs> said they won't, they won't remember um, um, And it was tricky And you know he's going to walk off the roof He's standing at the edge of the roof You have a good idea that he's going to do something The minute he says, can I feed my pigeons You're wondering, is he going to kill Liam? Is he, what's he going to do? But, um, and that whole scene was a dance and that whole, I mean, we, spent, we spent a week shooting on that rooftop And by the way, he did walk off that roof He, he was attached to We were originally going to build something For him to jump down onto And then I asked the stunt guy, I said, won't it look better if he really jumps? <laughs> and, and the stunt guy looked at me, and, and, and he said, you know, well, what we could do is they put him on a descender rig, which is a thin wire. They have a crane that goes up over the roof, and the crane, there's a, literally a wire thinner than these cords attached here. It's a very thin wire. And he jumps off, and within 10 feet, it starts slowing him down, and by 20 feet, he's fully stopped. So you are stepping off the roof, but you... Now, the tricky thing is you don't feel anything pulling on you. So when you step off, you don't have this psychological security of knowing there's something there. You're just hoping it's there. And also, Dari weighs 300 pounds. He's 6'8 and 300 pounds. So we had... To, and then you erase, by the way, you erase the crane digitally, you erase the wire, you erase everything. So we would rehearse with sandbags because he's so heavy. What we didn't want to have happen is he jumps off the roof and then he swings back into the roof into somebody's apartment three floors below. <laughs> so we had to sort of practice knowing exactly the right way to modulate the tension on the descender rig. And because I had this, you know, when I was up there, I said, there is a great shot where the camera dollies right off the roof with him, which it does. The camera goes right off the roof because what you don't see is there's a fire escape on the roof. And so we could lay the track. It goes past the edge of the roof. So you could go off the edge of the roof with the dolly track. And there's one take where the operators, you see. <laughs> um, um, and so, they, so we set, and it's very safe. The descender, it's scary because he's nine stories up, but it is very safe. So the stunt coordinator said, yes, we could do that, but no actor will want to do that. We'll have to have a double do it. So I called Dari in Iceland, and I said, Dari, 
you know, how are you doing? But, you know, we're going to shoot in a week and just checking you have everything you need and is there anything I can do for you? And he said, no, no, I'm, you know, everything's good. And I said, great. Hey, how would you feel about jumping off the roof for real? You hear? <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> and then, he, and he meant it. And I said, you know, we'll have you on a, on a rig. He said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And he got there and he said, Scott, I just need to tell you one thing. And I said, what, what? He said, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> and the day it came, you know, we're on this roof. I, I think we had 100 people on the rooftop up there. Everybody wanted to come watch Dari walk off the roof. And he did it, the first time he did it, Perfectly, He had this weird posture. He just, because what you don't want is if you don't want the actor to look down, you don't want the actor to hesitate, you want them to really look like they're jumping off. And he did it beautifully. He did it again. And, you know, I bought him a case of beer and that was sitting for him when he came up. <laughs> and, and then he said to me, can I do it again? I can do better the second time. So we did it again. Walked off the, walked off the roof the second time. So anyway, that's he's he's amazing what they'll what they'll do for for their director. <laughs> I gotta say, as moderator, I, I won't walk off. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I thought he was gonna say, if you do it first, tell me, then I'll. Do I it. did love uh, Mascara's expression there during yeah. that. That's why it would be nice if we didn't know the trailer because we would have been surprised as he was. Well, Liam saw none of the rehearsals. He didn't want to see the rehearsals, and that actually was take one. And that was his face when he walked off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and as we talked about, so we have him jumping, and then the next scene, which, uh, the little girl, that's the scene that really hit me the most, actually, in this movie. You use, like, a really bright red jacket. The first time we've seen color. So is that kind of just, like, a way to pop the obsession and the yeah. total... Well, you go into their head for that five minutes. You go into their heads. You're in their life in the basement, you know, when you're in their house, and they're very domestic... Life, um, um, and then you're you're. And by the way, they're not gay. I read a lot of reviews of this movie that said they're gay. These guys are not, definitely not at all gay. And um, I think one of them grew up in that house and lived there, and I think they've known each other since they were twelve. But I don't think they're gay. Um, but for that scene, then the scene when she's in the coat, and it's a tricky scene because what I'm trying to do there is be them and be what they're feeling and be this whole thing. And it's horrible. It's awful. I'm not trying to, to sexualize a little girl for the rest of us, but I'm making us complicit in what they're, what they're thinking and, and what they're feeling at that moment. But in terms of your question about the color, to that end, I wanted to change everything because it is in their point of view. And the movie has a super rigorous color palette. We didn't let a lot of color into the movie at all. And we had a we had photographs and the movie had to look just like those photographs with just those colors and anything extra we took out digitally. And the movie was shot with, it was shot digitally, but it was shot with very old lenses, old anamorphic Panavision B-series lenses, which are beautiful because they, they're old, the vignette on the edges. And so that's what made the movie look like it was made, you know, 40 years ago. And, but for that stuff, we shot with different lenses. We shot, everything became crystal clear in that whole section. And it was really interesting because they do appear normal. Yeah. And that was kind of you wanted to make sure that they showed that we were normal and you compare that to later when we showed that they're a bit crazy. A bit crazy. Uh, same thing when they had the conversation between Matt Scudder and uh, Albert on the phone. Yeah. In the laundromat, a little yeah. off-skewed again. Well, that was a tilt and shift lens. If you noticed, it's weird because one side of the frame is out of focus and one side of the frame is in focus, which is something you don't see. Or when he's putting eye drops in the woman, his eyes are in focus but his mouth is out of focus while he's talking on the phone I use those lenses a lot 
to make some of his face is blurry and some of his face is crystal clear, and it it just it makes you very uncomfortable. And so we did we did a lot of that. Yeah, the scene that really bothered the scene with the eye drops when he it's goes terrible. to the wife. And he tells her, "You don't know how lucky you are. She's a vegetable, <laughs> <laughs> and she's better off that way than if she had been." Yeah, he's and, and he, her daughter and the... and he that guy David Harbour is a great actor, and you've seen him in lots of things in the newsroom. He can play the sweet. He is the nice guy, you know. And he can play incredibly sweet, harmless people. He can play intelligent people. But I've never seen anyone have more fun than him on this movie, which was frightening. <laughs> um, now, the scene with uh, the, the confrontation with the tombstones where her fingers are cut off. Yeah. That was a pivotal scene for me because, you, you know, you could have gone the Allah Taken route where he's just going to get revenge. It's all about him. Right. No, he goes through a complete crisis of faith. What is he going to do? Right. Is it, is it, it's not about him. It's about the justice or something like that. Is it, so how did you, and of course he runs a 12-step program. How did you weave that all in where the 12-step program is after he sees that? Well, I think, and this is, it's a controversial part of the movie for me personally, because I'm not entirely sure I succeeded in doing what you just said. And that is certainly what I intended to do. And the 12 steps in the script worked so much better than they did when we started bringing them into the movie. And some people like it and some people really don't like it. And I, I understand that point of view a lot because I'm very ambivalent about it. And what I was trying to do is, again, there is a hypocrisy in his life. He goes to the AA meetings, but he doesn't tell the story. He's... he's, he's Stop drinking, but he's not sober. And in the middle of all of this violence, I thought it would be very ironic to bring in this innocent-faced girl and the AA meeting and bring in the, the, the 12 steps. I'd shot much more of the girl at the, at the AA meeting. There was much more stuff happening in that and his relationship to her just visually in the room. And that played really well, or it played really well in just hearing this kind of the 12 steps and not seeing there was there was I was betwixt and between the way I'd shot it in other words and so I want to go back and reshoot that (laughs) Um, but it was it was a very tricky thing because that is here's a guy who's becoming his worst self in order to do something good and very very hard to pull but I did like the scene where the drug addict brother dies yes he, he mentioned, do, you know, tell the truth yes. unless it would injure somebody. Yes. He doesn't get to tell her, his brother that he was he in love with the wife. But I don't think he was following the 12 steps. He was dying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a conscious choice. Right. Uh, it, it was uh, so. But of course, at the end of the movie, I mean, he does his initial thing is I am choosing. We can just arrest this guy. Right. So that, but I noticed you shot him in the shadows, though, almost like he's going to get pulled back in. That's right. Even though he's, he wants to do it. Uh, is that kind of the way you planned it, or just like he's almost out? He just knows they're going to kill the other guy. He just knows if I walk away. And they did, anyway. You know, he just knows he can't, he can't he'll always wonder, and he'll, he can't walk away. And, uh, but he also left because he didn't want TJ there. He wanted TJ to leave. And that was really, really important to him. And I flirted with the big cliche, you know, having TJ in the back of the van is the oldest cliche in the book. And I think and, uh, even in the novel... TJ says to Matt Scudder, at this point, this is when I would get in the back of the van if this were a bad TV show or something like that. And I thought, huh, I'm going to put him in the van. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but not, and nothing happens. He was just in there, and I didn't want to use it so much to put him in jeopardy for longer than 10 seconds. I just needed a way for them to find out where they live. 
because in the book there was a long complicated thing with the computers and where the phone records were and I just wanted a very quick way to find out if the guy gets out of the van and looks up at a street sign that would be a lot easier for me. But at the same time, I mean, he, he's also showing concern. If he's out in the rain, he's going to get sick. It, he's showing humanity, actually, in this very Absolutely, tense and it provided me with all sorts of, all sorts of stuff for, for that as well. You know that the problem was in that car, we had to go back. We shot two weeks in that cemetery because you'd think someone didn't want us to shoot there. Um, we had the worst luck in that cemetery. Everything would go wrong. And it's Greenwood Cemetery is in Sunset Park. It's beautiful. I think it's the size of Central Park. And Olmsted designed it, the same designer. And um, it's an amazing, amazing place. But there's no light because it's a cemetery. So who's there at night? So we had to bring in um, eight to ten of these giant they're condors. They're these big lights that are on lifts. And they take 20 minutes to raise them up. And put, you know, and get them in position. And then, if you want to turn them around, it takes you know to move them. If you're going to change direction, it takes another 20 minutes to a half hour. You just hear beep, beep, beep. While they're all moving all night long in the cemetery, and meanwhile, you have a crew of 100 people stepping on everything. And um, it was very hard to shoot there, and it was very cold when we were shooting that, so everything was very slow. And what happened is we had to leave and come back, and the scene in the car we had technical issues with rain. And so we came back and we shot that again in, in the rain. And also when we came back and when the cars are pulling in and parking, all the trees were full of red blossoms. Everything had blossomed in the time in the month that we had been away. So we had to digitally remove all of that. But we only had, because we were picking up so many extra shots for the cemetery, I only had maybe 45 minutes to shoot everything in that car. And exactly what you said is what I think suffers because I didn't want it to, I had to do it very quickly and I didn't want it to be corny. I wanted him to kind of at first be angry that the kid is gone and then come to the conclusion that he can't be, can't be out in the rain. Uh, ah, so that was... Uh, yeah. And then the final fight scene. Yeah. Was, that, uh, was that scripted the way you wanted? Or on yeah. set you kind of work with the two actors? We worked with it. The only mandate I had is it should be messy. It should be not slick. No one's a martial artist. They're just slipping and sliding on the floor. It should not be pretty. It should just be slammed into things. They should break everything. Um, and then he should just tase them. You know? And it should look like he's, he's getting his ass kicked. Liam really wanted to get beat up. And he, he's not afraid to be afraid. And, and that was the sort of mandate for that scene, was to do something very messy that didn't feel choreographed. And, and again, we didn't have a lot of time to do a long sequence. Um, I think in most movies these days, we would have, that scene would have been, that fight would have gone on for another five minutes. And it's interesting because Liam Neeson never gets beaten up usually. No. Like he usually is the bad guy. He's beat up twice in this movie. Oh, yeah, with the earlier... In the apartment, with the, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Bruce, so it, was, it must have been fun for him playing a different role. He's really, he's, he's game for anything, he really is. So was there anything else that kind of surprised you about his performance? Like, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, this, this would work better than I originally imagined. I think the thing about him is, is you know, you sit with him, and he's, he's extremely polite. He's a very, very nice, nice person. That's the best way to describe him. He's smart. He's done everything. He's very comfortable in his own skin. He knows what he can do, what he can't do. He's very, very polite. But what you don't realize is it, when you look through the lens at him, when you look at him on screen, is he's very sad. There is this sadness, and obviously he's had real tragedy in his life, but it's even more than that. There is this thing that comes through that you feel like 
he has a history, even if he doesn't. There is a huge history. He can just make, he can do that without, without moving. And he's one of the few actors that can just be still and do a lot with a look. Even in the diner while TJ's rambling on to the waitress, he just does that little bit with his eyes and it's kind of looks up at her and looks at him. It's, it's kind of nice. Is that a good lesson for screenwriters? Sometimes, you know, nonverbal is the way to go? Yeah, it's a big lesson for screenwriters. And nonverbal is almost always the way to go. If you can do it nonverbally, it's almost always more effective. It's much, much, much better. Um, so we're going to ask a couple of questions about some of your other work before we open up to the audience. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures is Out of Sight. You've got a great chemistry between the two lead characters. How surprised were you when you actually saw it on the screen, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez pulling off your words like that? Very surprised. I think it was the first time in my career where I could watch the movie. And it's not that I hated the movies or I felt like my movies were ruined. I was just, it's very hard to hear stuff you wrote. And it's, it's like hearing, it's just strange. It was, it was, I get very self-conscious. And that movie I watched like I didn't write it. It was the first time I watched something where I forgot I'd written it. And um, the two of them were, I mean, like, and they didn't get on at all. They didn't even like each other. They hardly spoke during production and because and, they're completely opposite as people. And yet on, on screen, the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe how, how I, I, I just believed it. That was amazing. And uh, another one of you, this is actually not your first attempt at doing a fallen drug-addicted cop, Tom Cruise in Minority Report. Yes. Uh, and, of course, that, have you people seen Minority Report? Is there everybody? It's about, you know, if, something that could not happen today, predicting the future or NSA watching. Right. So not at all possible. <laughs> um, so how did you approach working with Steven Spielberg to kind of, like, bury that kind of themes in a futuristic society? Well, he, he it's interesting because he likes to give you free reign and then react. And um, when we started that project, he didn't want to do a mystery. He said, it shouldn't be a mystery. He said, I don't do mysteries. And then the movie has, you know, as you know, two mysteries in it by the end, by the time we were done. I think and it was, it was, he was very willing to have a character who was, again, um, not entirely sympathetic. And the guy is this fascist policeman by day. And at night, he's jogging into the inner city to buy drugs so that he can better talk to his, or thinks he can better talk to his dead kid. And, um, and he, he was fine with that. <laughs> it's like, because Spielberg would generally not go that dark. He wouldn't. And he was, he was fine with that. And, and it was darker in the script, I think. I mean, I think there was much more of an obsessive quality to the, to the policeman, to the Tom Cruise character. But... Um, it's definitely, and the ending, I think, was much darker in the script than it's the way it plays in the movie. But I think that um, still, he, he has so many ideas. The, the problem with Stephen is that he's on to the next. You know, he's just on to the next. And, but he has, he has you'll, you'll sit with him and there'll be hundreds of ideas coming your way all, all the time. Is there something freeing in science fiction where you can take your ideas or your themes and put it into... A well, different world. And it is freeing in some ways, but I'd never written it before. I'd never written science fiction. I'd never even really read much science fiction. I'd read Dune. I think that was the only book I'd ever read. <laughs> I was never into, you know, I was never, I watched Star Wars and, you know, like that, but I was not a big science fiction person. The problem is everything you realize, if someone picks up a phone, you have to think about what is the phone. If someone gets in a car, what is a car? Everything changes in the future, and I remember Stephen said to me, if they pick up a phone, just say they pick up a phone, and we'll worry about it later. Just write it like it's happening now. And that was very freeing, 
to think of it just in terms of a story because the concept was so sci-fi. And then I began to, you know, more I talked to the production designer and we had think tanks about future. Then I could gradually bring bring things to bear on the story the, without, getting over, without getting overwhelmed by it. Right, and then we're going to have my last film. Uh, anybody who's a dog lover or happens <laughs> to have a human heart? Don't see Marley and You saw Marley and me. You have ever so slight tendency to go dark in your movies. What drew you to doing a movie about a dog, like the, the relationship with a, between someone and their dog? I love dogs. Um, um, I've had many of them. I have one now. Uh, my daughter read the book. And my daughter would tell, we'd walk our dog. My daughter was a teenager, and we would. She was twelve. She was thirteen or fourteen. And the only way I could hang out with her is to pretend not to want to hang out with her. So I would take the dog out at night, and she would always say, "I'll go with you." And we would walk the dog at night. And she, my mother, had sent her a copy of the book of Marley and Me. And for a couple of weeks, every night, my daughter would tell me a chapter of the book while we were walking the dog. And this happened, and that would sort of relay the chapter to me. And I got a call um, within two months of this from, from Elizabeth Gabler, also a UCSB alum, who runs Fox 2000. And she said, you know, we have a script for Marley and Me. The writer is going to go off and direct his own movie. And it's, we're just not done. Can you come in and, um, and work on the movie for us? And I said, well... I know that book really well because my daughter's told me every chapter and I think I'm the wrong guy for you. I don't think that's my, you know, I love dogs and she, I just don't know, it seems a little soft for me. And she said, no, I think you're the perfect person for it. You should, you should just, you know, come read the script and then let's have a conversation. And I read the script and I realized, oh, this is not about a dog. This is about my marriage. <laughs> this is about how the dog is a metaphor for how messy marriage and life is with kids. And the more I thought about it that way, I decided I'm going to write this like it's my life. And almost every line of dialogue in that movie, because the book is nonfiction, there is no conversation really in the book, is out of our life. You know, the kids, the kid named Whoops, all of that is, in, is straight out of my life. And the dog, you know, the dog stuff is per, per the book. But I just realized it was a great way to do it. And my kids at that point couldn't see any of my movies, so I thought, well, maybe it'll be nice for them to see to see this one. Could you change the ending, though? He dies in the book. <laughs> so it wasn't you changing it, you know. Uh. I do remember we were at a test screening in Long Beach, and um, I got in late, and I sat down in the test screening, and, I'm, and at the end of the movie, the lights came up, and I hear sobbing like nothing I've ever heard before, <laughs> all over the theater, but especially right next to me. And I look over, and it's this, you know, 40-year-old guy, <laughs> just, just reduced to nothing. And I thought, oh, this will be a big hit. <laughs> uh, for our gauchos, one last question before we open it up. Um, you graduated from here, our department. Our department is, the film department is very uh, focused on critical studies. How do you think critically studying film helped you as a writer-director today? Well, I think the problem is that people are too focused on production. They just want to go shoot. And um, you can't shoot anything if you don't know what it's about. And critical studies, and it's also interdisciplinary, the program, or it used to be. You know, you, you had to take a lot of other classes. And I think if you, any kind of critical thinking is way better for writing than just watching movies. 
And people don't think enough about storytelling. They don't think enough about what the pieces of a story or the pieces of a movie, they're way too focused on camera angles. And so you have kids who go to film school, and I see them all the time. They come up with great camera angles that are telling no story. They're a completely absent story. And I can use a drone. I can do this. I can do that. And it has nothing to do with anything human or real or honest or authentic or even manipulative, like a horror movie or a thriller or what have you. There's nothing that's about good storytelling. And I think critical thinking, any kind of critical thinking or reading, writing, if you're a good writer, if you can tell a story, that's what makes you a good director, even if you don't write scripts. It's what makes you a good filmmaker. The best filmmakers are not just shooters. You want to grow up to be Michael Bay? Go to Art Center. You, know? you want to grow up to do that kind of thing where you're just shooting and shooting and shooting? George Miller just made a movie. He's 70 years old, and he just schooled every young filmmaker on how to shoot a movie. It's amazing. It's amazing. David Fincher said to me, I had to watch that movie twice. I still don't know how he shot it. <laughs> 70 years old. Yeah, he had a lot to live up to because I was worried about a Mad Max remake is going to be terrible, but no, man, awesome. it blew my mind. It's awesome. And you'd see all the little making ofs, these YouTube clips. Incredible. Just in the imagination. And, and um, again, everything there for a reason. Every shot is there for a reason. You know where you are. It's not, he's not just making it up and thinking, what can I do? He had a set of rules and he followed, he followed his rules all the way through. All right, we have time for a couple of questions from you guys before we have our awesome reception food. So raise your hand. We have our lovely Pollock Theater interns who will run you a mic. When you were talking about um, the female character that was supposed to be Liam Neeson's friend, yes. that was cut out, um, and it went well, have you ever had moments like that that you did not want to be taken out or something that was compromised? And, uh-huh. like, how did, you, how did you react to that as an artist? Like, something in your screenplay that was maybe cut out or that you felt was necessary that didn't end up making hmm. it into the film? Um, I don't know. There's always little changes to things. Just, just the way people say things, sometimes it's different, or the rhythm of something, or, you know, they're always little, little as a writer in particular. But I'll tell you, I mean, I react... When it happens, I, I always, you know, every time I see the movie, I see that thing that's missing or I see that thing that's different. But even as a director, it's really hard to do it the way you see it, even. You're, 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 it's picking a lock with a wet noodle. You've got 100 people you're trying to get to paint. They're holding the brush at the other end, and you're trying to describe to them this thing to paint. And I remember calling a director friend of mine when I was doing The Lookout. It was about two weeks in, and I was so depressed because I felt like I wasn't getting anything I wanted. And I called him up, and he said to me, um, well, what percentage do you think you're getting every day of, of what you want? Where do you, what percentage of the footage you're getting are you really happy with? And I said, maybe 5%. And he said, oh, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing good. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so you're, you, the hard thing is you're living, especially when you're directing, you're living in this state of perpetual disappointment in yourself, in everything. <laughs> Nothing is the way you'd planned it for months, and now it's not working, and that's just this thing. And, and so cutting out stuff that you love is a natural part of the process. You are going to lose things that you love. People are going to disagree with you, and they're going to want things out. The audience may hate what you love, 
And you may sit in a test screening and they may be laughing at this thing that should be really emotional or whatever. You know, they may be put off by it or they may not understand it or the studio might not like it and they might want to cut it or somebody might be offended and they might want it pulled back. Um, you know, even on this movie, I had to make big cuts for England because they gave it the equivalent of NC-17. This version you saw where you don't see anything. They gave it an NC-17 version. For what? I'm curious. Um, well, it's basically because of the van, the, what happens in the back wow. of the van. And, you know, I had to chop up a lot of stuff there that made no sense to me. And, um, but I had to do it, you know. And sometimes it's all, it never feels good, although sometimes you'd be surprised. Sometimes you are convinced you need something. You absolutely must have something. And you cut it out and you realize, oh, oh, I can do this instead. With that, losing that enables me to, to do this another way. Or if you want the same value from the thing you've lost, you find a way to get it another way. You know, you'd be surprised how you can, how you either get over it or you can figure out another way. Aspect that you mentioned before, so you were talking like... This what aspect? The collaborative, collaborative, yes. collaborative aspect. Um, because you was mentioning you were doing the the rough cut, and then you sort of showed it to your director friends. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent that sort of is part of the process of always showing it to someone to sort of get some feedback. And but also the the flip side of that of if you're always showing it to the same people, it sort of becomes a sort of vacuum effect. Because you mentioned how for uh, the Tony Gilroy film, mm-hmm. you told them to cut the girlfriend, and then this one he told you to cut the female cop. So if and he probably didn't even mean it. He probably just did it because you made me cut the Right, but what I mean is if you're, always, <laughs> if you're always having the same idea of um, this story could go and this story can go, does that also influence the, like, your style and his style as well? Well, that's, a really, that's actually a fantastic question um, because, you know, we all do show our work in various forms to each other. And a and famous director, I think it was Mike Nichols, who said, you know, I'm always, it's always a mess at one point. It doesn't work. And, and um, you know, it just, I, I, I show it to my friends and they help me understand it, you know. And I would be on the mix stage with this guy who mixed reds and he told me, you know, Warren Beatty would show eight cuts of that. You know, he would invite these people and they would always have people in here looking at a new cut of the film. And you do have to have people react to it because perspective is, you know, very fragile and we lose it quickly and we don't know what we're looking at and um, um, it's very hard to, to, to be able to remain critical in the, right, in the right way. I will tell you an interesting story about this movie. That, that screening, I was fighting with my editor a lot on the movie because the movie, if you notice, the movie is shot in a very specific way. There's not a lot of cuts in it. Um, the, we were talking earlier about the first diner scene when you meet Liam in, the pre, in 1999, rather, in the later part of the story. After the, the title sequence, you have that shot of Liam sitting in the booth, you know, where he's sitting there in the booth reading the newspaper. The shot was shot so that he would be sitting in the booth, reading, as it is now, where he's sitting in the booth reading the newspaper. And it's framed so that there's room on the right here, and a guy comes up with his butt, his you know, right there to camera on purpose. But there's Liam right there. And they have this conversation for about 45 seconds. And then the, the guy sits down across from in the booth. We're still holding on the shot. And it's now a two shot. 
um, where they're a profile two shot where they're talking to each other, hold for another 35, 45 seconds before we then finally cut into coverage, into close-ups of, of the two of them. Normally, you would, have, you'd been, you would have cut up to the guy there. You, you know, had a reverse on him. You would have done all this cutting. You want to see who it is he's talking to right away. You would have done kind of traditional television cutting or even what they do in movies now where everything is upcut for the pace. Speed it up, speed it up, speed it up. And I cut it that way, and my editor would fight with me. You can't cut the movie like that. And, so, and, the, and my own fault was I shot options because I said, well, what if the studio doesn't let me do this? What if they, I should have a little coverage, or what if I need to get out? So she would use every ounce of coverage I had to make it bounce around. And I screened the movie for those two guys. The movie was a mess. It just didn't work, and I couldn't figure out why. I didn't understand why, and I, my, my director's cut was due in a week. And Steven Soderbergh said to me, he watched the movie, and he said to me right away, he said, you did not cut the movie the way you shot it. He said, it is very insecurely cut. You can see how it's shot. I see the angles, I see the sizes, and yet you're, cu- you're cutting everywhere. I don't know why you're cutting everywhere. Why do you need to? The movie is supposed to be this kind of old-school, rigorously, you know, controlled movie, and you're cutting all over the place. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm firing my editor, but I don't know, I don't have another, because we've been fighting every day. It's miserable. She wants to make a completely different movie, and we got on great on my first film. We really did, but she, in the subsequent years, began cutting a ton of television. So everything was up cut, and everything was cut right on the dialogue. You know, when I say something, it's on me. When Matt says something, it's on Matt. Pop, 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 pop. Watch basic television. That's what it is all the time. And you have a master where we introduce us, and then you cut in a little closer, and then a little closer for final punctuate. You know, that's the way she was cutting the movie. And I said, I don't know what to do. And Stephen said to me, you know, I don't start shooting the Nick for like four weeks. I'll cut it for you. <laughs> I said, what? Because I'll be your editor. Because he cuts all his movies as Marianne Bernard, who was his late mother, and shoots all his movies as Peter Andrews, who was his father. And I said to him, per what you're saying, I said, okay. And, you know, we help each other. You know, I'll, he'll show me a cut of a movie, and we'll, you know, we're always helping. All people in the business are always showing each other their films. But the danger is, he comes into the cutting room, and we start cutting his movie. And I said, what I don't want to do is cut your movie. I want to cut my movie. And he said, no, we're going to cut your movie. We're going to cut the movie the way you shot it, the way it's supposed to be shot. It's not going to take that long. We're just going to put it back to be the way it should be. And he said, it'll actually be fun. I said, all right, let's do it for a day. <laughs> let's just see how this goes. And so he left the opening sequence alone, and we get to the diner. And he gets to the shot of him sitting there. And he gets rid of all of her cuts. And he says, well, let's just see how long this plays. And he sat back, and he's, we're watching the shot of him where it's just supposed to sit. Well, he comes up, and then he sits down, and he literally stopped the avid at the moment we were, I wanted to cut to the close-ups. And he goes, well, that announces the movie. Let's cut it like that. And so it was great, <laughs> because he was protecting me from me. He wasn't, you know, we had this great time. We recut the movie in four days. Literally recut the movie in four days, because it was shot the way it was supposed to be cut. And so we were able to very quickly go through it. And it was a lot of fun. We had a blast just going through it, just kind of, kind of doing that. And where we disagreed in matters of taste or style, you know, I won. 
because he was just, he was Marianne Bernard. Um, um, and it was very educational to me because the movie, I realized, for, to, to me, so much of the struggle I was having was a failure of nerve. I made rules for myself, which you have to do as a director, and I completely, on day one, abandoned them because I thought, no one will let me do this. No one was even arguing with me. No one even said, they were looking at dailies, no one was saying, you need more coverage, you need more, no one was. They were all saying, it looks beautiful, it looks great. The lesson I learned is, stick to your guns, you set rules for yourself, and you follow those rules or you end up with a mismatch. And you, see, you can see movies that have no rules. You know, George Miller was talking about everything is center-framed. He decided to shoot everything center-framed. On this movie, I decided I'm only going to use these lenses and these sizes, and we're not going to move the camera this way or that way, and then abandoned it. We're only going to cut this way, and so on, and then abandoned it. And so what was great about that, so to your point, that's what happens more often. What you have with your friends are people who know you well enough to tell you the truth and to protect you from yourself. And it's very hard to find people like that. And when you have a few people that you can call to look at and you know, and you may disagree and you may realize this is not their cup of tea or, but you can source a lot of their comments to something that they just don't understand this. And you can take that into account and you may have two people who disagree or really violently in disagreement over something in the movie and you take that into account. But you have to stick to your guns. You have to ultimately, if you don't understand it, if you're, if you're breaking your own rules, you're, you're kind of a hack. And that's what was happening to me. I was making myself sick by not cutting the movie I had wanted to cut. That's why what was wrong with it is it wasn't, I forgot everything I wanted to do. And the last thing I'll say that we did that was very important to the question about, comment about dialogue versus um, non-dialogue. The first hour and a half or two hours that we were in the cutting room together, we did something that I'll always do from now on, is we fast-forwarded through the movie, through the cut. Now, ostensibly, that was just so... Stephen could get f- familiar with the shape of the movie and just sort of memorize it. But what you also see is you see the story happening. And so he would fast forward, fast forward, and then every now and then he would stop and he would say, what's the scene about in terms of the story? What's happening in the story here? And sometimes I would go, oh, um, huh. He would say, okay, let's take it out. <laughs> we'll, we'll hang it up for a minute and we may come back to it. We may put it back. None of those things made it back into the movie. Because if I couldn't, talk about why it was in the movie, but I didn't see it until we were watching it without sound because I'd be so in love with the dialogue and so in love with the words. But once we turned the sound off and I just saw the movie playing, it became, it became much different. Probably way longer than you wanted to hear. I'm sorry. But. <laughs> uh, well, we always end our evening with the same question, Yeah. so we're going to give it to you. Uh, can you tell us about a special movie theater experience you had growing up as a child? Maybe going with your family, seeing a movie, something that really touched you or grabbed you? Oh, Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> Dog afternoon because I'd never seen a movie where the audience in the theater was were standing up and clapping and cheering when he was in front of the bank yelling mm-hmm. Attica. I remember everybody in the theater was insane. I'd never seen an audience respond that viscerally. And I was when was that seventy four? Seventy four, yeah. Yeah, so I was fourteen, and all I I'm, I changed my life. That movie completely changed my life. I would say. All right, well, this ends our evening, so we want to give a special thanks to Universal Pictures for giving us this film. Uh, also want a special thanks to the Pollock Theater interns, these lovely you'll see on our cameras. <laughs> uh, they're, sadly, they're also graduating today, so with a heavy heart, they'll be leaving too. 
but they really make the theater work. So if you want to say thanks for good eating, really it's them that make it all possible. <laughs> thank you. Uh, they're most great. And of course, we want to thank Scott Frank for coming You're back to UCSB. You're very welcome. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.